for most people in India, there is no notion of the Indian Ocean the way there is in, in Western languages. There's just this notion of Kalapani. There are local terms for you know, the Arabian Sea or the Bay of Bengal, but there isn't a sense that all the way from the Persian Gulf to the Straits of Malacca, there's a body of water known as the Indian Ocean. And so this Kalapani, particularly if you were not from the coastal areas of India, was not a body of waters you were familiar with. And so for many people from inland South Asia, crossing that Kalapani was kind of a ritual transgression because once you got on a ship and you were on board that ship, which traveled for whether it's weeks or months, the possibility of caste transgressions occurring was very, was very likely. Hi, I'm Sukrad Singh from Sikh Archive and welcome to the 32nd episode of our podcast series of conversations with historians, authors, academics, researchers and activists on topics related to the areas of expertise on Sikh or Punjabi history. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Anand Yang, who is a scholar of history with fields of interest including comparative colonialism and South Asian studies. He is a professor of history at the University of Washington and author of the new book, Empire of Convicts, which we will be discussing today, and in particular, the case studies of Bai Maharaj Singh and Karak Singh. But before we start, a quick message about our sponsor of this episode from Six Student Learning, which is an educational resource that is developing a comprehensive Six Studies modular program for Sikh children aged between 4 to 16 years with the option to take exams for modules and obtain certificates of achievement. And right now they've published a new series of Gurmukhi learning workbooks for those looking to learn how to read and write Punjabi. They are an excellent resource for new parents wanting to teach their children the culturally rich mother tongue that is Punjabi. You can find them at www.sixstudentlearning.co.uk. But now, back to the podcast that we have planned for you today. Who is Anand Yang? My family went from China to India to join an earlier branch of the family that had become part of Rabindranath Tagore's project in Shantiniketan. And so they were involved in this India-China connections comparisons project centered around Buddhism. And uh, eventually, my parents uh, moved from Bengal to Delhi, which is where I grew up. So basically, zero to 15, I was in India. So I'm Indian by birth and upbringing. That's the way I define myself and characterize myself. And what fascinated you to study South Asian history? Well, I started out uh, as um, many kids of the diaspora do in the sciences, in fields where you think you're going to be secure and have a good future, but uh, discovered that rather than be passionately fond of chemistry and math and engineering, which I was studying, that I was much more interested in humanities and social sciences. 
And so towards my junior year in college in the U.S., I drifted towards history and then um, pursued it in my graduate studies and postgraduate studies. I wanted to start out looking at China, but in the 70s, it was not possible to do field work in China. And since I already had the languages, I grew up speaking Hindi Urdu, I shifted to South Asian studies. So for me, being a historian means you've got you've to go out into the field and be very much present and involved in whatever part of the world you're working on, regardless of whether or not it's in a distant time period. And so um, it became uh, India rather than China. And in India, it became, because I was interested in peasants, uh, it became Bihar, the poorest province, or one of the poorest provinces of India, which had in the 40s and 50s a robust peasant movement. So I was interested in how did this area that used to be the, the hub of Indian civilization at one time become in the colonial period one of the poorest parts of India and really the world. And so um, I started out in, in very much focused on Bihar, looking at uh, peasant society, agrarian studies, but I was always interested in ordinary men and women. And the only way you can do that kind of social history is by looking at the kinds of records in which you can hear their voices, you can eavesdrop on them. And very often this meant in records that criminalized them because they were usually caught up in various kinds of illegal actions that, that the state de- deemed illegal. You know, so it could be stealing very small sums of money to survive. It could be disputing land claims, could be caste-related clashes. And so in these records of the criminal justice system, uh, ordinary men and women came alive, particularly if there were trials. And so uh, that's how from very early on, I I looked at criminal justice records, and this enabled me to know a lot about who was targeted by the colonial states. And at that time, I was mostly looking at peasant history, but it was there in the back of my mind uh, and led to a whole number of studies that didn't necessarily relate to the peasant history I did but ended up being projects uh, that took different forms of life later on. Could you please give us a brief overview of the colonial framework that existed at that time? What kind of sanctions were they administering and for the different types of crime? So at one level, lots of lesser level, lower level political political insurgent acts were criminalized. Not at the top level, not if it were like a mutiny rebellion as in 1857, but many of the sort of rank and file mutineers, what they did was considered crime. And so for those crimes, they were punished. So both political crimes as well as garden variety kinds of crimes 
The most severe form of punishment was execution, by, typically by hanging. And generally, the colonial state prided itself on being a very merciful state. So as much as possible, it didn't execute a lot of people. What it did instead was uh, mobilize their bodies for labor, either by transporting them overseas or by sending them to jails where the rhetoric in Indian jails always was, uh, how can we afford to feed all these people in a manner that's better than what many ordinary people subsist on? Because they're getting rations that are better than poor people on the outside. So let's put them to work. And so initially it was road gangs. And when when... That led to large numbers of casualties. It was intramural labor in prisons in India. Whereas overseas, it was, let's take these new outposts that the British are seizing and gaining control of through various kinds of treaties negotiated with local sultans and rajas. And, uh, but, we need, but we need a labor force. And we can't get the local Malays and Indonesians working for us, either because they're already contracted out in sort of debt slavery forms of uh, labor, or because the wages we offer is too low. And so let's get some Indians to help us. And you also argue that this colonial penal transport system was responsible for the colonial expansion project, and it was leveraged as such. Yeah, they're using, they're using the labor to consolidate their position in all these, all these outposts of empire, which is what Penang and, and Sumatra earlier and Singapore. Singapore is the prime example of that. Within five or six years of the British seizing Singapore in 1825, they bring in convicts. And even before 1825, they're trying to figure out when they can move convicts there and initially they don't because other areas need the, need the convict labor more, more critically. So it's not till 1825 that they're brought to Singapore. You draw a lot of parallels between the convicts, or those that were imprisoned, and those that served in the British Indian Army. Could you please expand on that? Yes. I mean, we know that that one of the key pillars of British colonial rule everywhere in the world is its monopoly of coercive power. And the way it wields that monopoly is through Indian bodies. Because in India, it was their successful tactic following the French in the 18th century of using Indian soldiers as sepoys to staff their military and over you know, 95% of the, the force is made up of Indians. And so on the subcontinent, it's using Indians against Indians. Overseas, it's using Indians against everybody else. So Indians against Malays, Indians against Indonesians, Indians against uh, Burmese, uh, Indians against Chinese. To use a phrase from that period, India is the oriental barracks or British expansion across Asia. And to what extent was the privatization of agriculture in Punjab with the colonial debt economy 
that was established surrounding that. To what extent did this lead to either a military recruitment campaign or an increase to the level of incarceration? Well, let me answer that a little differently. The recruitment of soldiers is initially, what the British are doing is following a Mughal pattern. So the different groups that the Mughals utilized, they utilized. And before the Anglo-Sikh Wars, which ends in the late 1840s, uh, it's mostly Hindustanis. It's mostly Bhojpuris from Bihar and Eastern UP that provide the bulk of the military. The recruitment of Sikhs and Punjabis, both Punjabi Hindus and Punjabi Muslims, as well as Punjabi Sikhs, really happens post the two wars. The two Anglo-Sikh wars, where the British realize they really have, they, they have gone up against a formidable force that are very effective fighters. And that, of course, is further demonstrated and proven during the mutiny when they use the Sikhs against the Hindustanis that have mutinied and rebelled. But the context for all of this is the land settlement that the British have introduced across northern India. In eastern India, in Bengal, Greater Bengal, it means the permanent settlement that has strengthened landholders and thrown a lot of vulnerable peasants off the land. And it's many of the criminal acts are being committed by these people who are contesting what they have lost through the Zamindari settlement. In Punjab, it will lead, uh, it will have a different kind of effect, but that effect doesn't really happen till the latter half of the 19th century, by which time the recruitment of Sikhs has become established policy. By the early 1850s, they're already recruiting Sikhs in large numbers not only into the military, but what becomes a critical force, not only in India, but particularly in Asia, seeks into the police. And the time period of your research you look at is between 1789 to 1940. That is the scope of your research, which you have invested over 20 years doing so. And could you tell us a little bit about what you were looking for and how you went about that regarding your methods and sources for knowledge? So even when I was doing peasant history, because I always had an eye trained on criminal activities, I knew a lot about about sort of serious offenders or what in colonial records are called heinous crimes. And very often that involved either violence, including murder, or involved groups of people committing crimes. And the British were always fearful about collective crime because collective crime could lead to insurgency. So between masses of people involved in what were called puggy or banditry to turning into social banditry to turning into political uprising against the British, there were very fine lines. So the British were always concerned about it. So in a way, a lot of that early research from the agrarian history phase of my life fed into this later work of looking at people who were transported. Uh, Also, I turned to this kind of work because originally I wanted to study prisons, but in the late 1990s when I started working on prisons, uh, the government of India denied 
denied me a research visa to go study prisons because a Human Rights Watch report had been written about the horrible state of Indian prisons. And uh, the whatever official in some ministry in, in New Delhi decided it was too dangerous to let a foreigner, because I had a foreign passport by that time, to come into India to work on prisons. Uh, and so uh, I decided that all those cases uh, of uh, sentencing that I had read which said, banish to so-and-so colony for 12 years, 14 years for perpetuity, I wondered what happened to these people. Uh, and I was always uh, intrigued by stories of political rebellion where, where the top echelon was killed, executed, and then the second rung of the, of the leadership was banished overseas, were exiled. And usually because Indian history means you only study them in India, typically these stories would end by saying, and we know nothing about what happened to the 73 political prisoners who were exiled overseas. And so I became interested in tracking their stories. And just because that's the way political units carve out their territories and their records, those were the records of a different state and not held in Indian archives or held in Indian archives until they boarded the ships. And then they became the responsibility of today's Singapore government or today's Malaysian government, et cetera, et cetera. There's also this um, philosophical dimension to the exile, namely this idea of crossing the Kalapani, which would uh, relinquish one's caste identity by banishing them into the water. Could you please explain more about that concept? For most people in India, there is no notion of the Indian Ocean the way there is in, in Western languages. There's just this notion of Kalapani. There are local terms for you know, the Arabian Sea or the Bay of Bengal, but there isn't a sense that all the way from the Persian Gulf to the Straits of Malacca, there's a body of water known as the Indian Ocean. And so this Kalapani, particularly if you were not from the coastal areas of India, was not a body of waters you were familiar with. And so for many people from inland South Asia, crossing that Kalapani was kind of a ritual transgression because once you got on a ship and you were on board that ship, which traveled for whether it's weeks or months, the possibility of caste transgressions occurring was very, was very likely, both in drinking water and eating food. And so the British figure out very early on in the late 18th century that their soldiers, who were mostly Brahmins and Rajputs from North India, who were fighting for them in Madras when the British were contesting against the, the French and, and other regional powers in South India, that these soldiers were sent from Calcutta to Madras by ship rather than by land because it took so much longer. And when these soldiers went back to their homes in Bihar and Avad, they were ostracized by their caste communities for having crossed the Black Waters. And so the British re realized that for many people, this was a terrifying journey to undertake and they focused wrongly on that these poor, superstitious Hindus 
They're terrified of crossing the big black waters, which everybody was, you know, whether it's British being sent from Britain to Australia, who were terrified of crossing the waters because it was a journey into the unknown. But for what they, what the British sort of glommed onto was that these superstitious people had all these naive and backward ideas about what it meant to cross the body of uh, a large body of water. Not, but eventually they figured out it, it was more focused on caste and uh, what protocols they, they introduced on shipboard was they would only give people water that had been carefully drawn from wells under the super, super, supervision of Brahmins and Muslims who had overseen uh, where this water came from. And they only issued uh, uncooked food to people and let people cook it themselves because then there was no caste violations that took place. And so all this was packaged into this horrific punishment, transportation, which the British believed terrified Indians. So even more so than the way transportation worked in Europe, in the Indian setting, it had this additional bite to it because it infringed on the ritual, on ritual notions of Hindu people. And the book has a focus on what happened to these people, the convicts or Bandwas, and through their lived experiences, how they exercised their agency, how they lived on those islands as, as their own wardens, essentially, and how they were, there was no real separation between the locals and them. What were you finding when you were going through all of these accounts. Could you share with us some of your findings? Basically, the book is centered around making ordinary men and women, in this case, people who have been condemned to transportation, but who I would argue are no different than many other men and women in India, because everybody is criminal to some extent or the other. It's making their lives, their experiences come alive and come alive in almost a laboratory kind of setting, because on an island, all the men and women are uh, much more under a microscope because it's a smaller population. So instead of having 100 million people, you have 50,000 people or 100,000 people or 150,000 people that the authorities are keeping track of. And there they can see uh, close up what the experiences, what the lives of these people are like, but they're largely left on their own because they're not in many ways in terms of their character in the colonial perception that different than other people who are there, be they Indians, Malays, Chinese, and people from other islands in Southeast Asia. So even though they're there in, in sort of this penal situation, they are not closely guarded and watched, in part because it's also very expensive to build the kinds of structures that don't happen till later. It's really the prisons, the concrete structures are really later developments and not there at the outset. And so one can learn a lot about uh, how ordinary men and women eked out this bare subsistence in most cases, but in some cases did quite well under penal conditions. 
One of the most fascinating case studies you have, in particular, are on Bhai Singh and Karak Singh. I mean, where do we start? Who were they and what brought them to your attention? I think what, what brought them to my attention was I found this letter written in Gurmukhi, but of course I only have it in uh, uh, English translation because the original document probably is, if it still exists, is buried somewhere in Ambala or Jalanda in the archives there. And this letter uh, said a lot about the experience of these two guys. So I started tracking these, these two men and uh, discovered that, of course, in the late 20th century, they have emerged as heroes, not only in kind of the nationalist pantheon of freedom fighters, but also having a whole religious dimension to them because Bhai Maharaj Singh, as is suggested by the uh, title of Bhai, was considered a, a religious figure, particularly holy and particularly having, having particular spiritual power, which is the way he lived when he held on to the very end in the Anglo-Sikh wars. So he and his companion, uh, in the colonial records described as a servant, but it was really more like his chela or disciple and really his companion. Bhai Marad Singh and Kharak Singh are the two men who fought to the bitter end in the Anglo-Sikh wars. And Bhai Marad Singh was the last person to be captured or to surrender to the British authorities because he's not captured till December 1849, by which time all the other Sikh elites have either been defeated or have been surrendered or been captured. So Bhai Bharat Singh is really the last of the fighters and he fights not only on horseback in actual battles, but he also fights and his claim to fame is he is able to provide supplies, whether it be munitions, whether it be horses, whether it be men, and he can always mobilize them and he can always provide miracles when Sikh rebels needed them the most. So he's this, this Bhai who's famous not only for his spirituality, but also his effectiveness on the battlefield and in providing the right supply of men and material and munitions in every important battle. And he's involved in all the key battles that occur. So from about 1844-45 all the way to the 1849. So he and, and uh, Kalak Singh are different. They're not your garden variety criminals. And the initial impulse was to execute him uh, the Governor General Lord Dalhousie wanted to execute them, but then decided that to make them into martyrs would make them remembered forever in history. So let's banish them into oblivion by sending them to Singapore, where nobody would ever remember them. And in the short term, that's effective. In the long term, of course, it fails because Bhai Marad Singh will emerge in the 20th century to be heroized, not only in Singapore, but all across India. And today, um, 
his legacy is um, amply demonstrated in any number of books that celebrate him, both in Southeast Asia as well as in India. And of course, then the Gurdwara that's associated with him that many people go to uh, if you want your boons granted. Uh, sort of a very interesting uh, tie-in with with the historical role by Marat Singh played. So he sent to Singapore, he and Kalak Singh are sent to Singapore, but treated very differently. They are not prisoners who are their own warders. They are closely guarded every step of the way, shackled, bound, and in Singapore, held in a special chambers in the prison, newly built prison, and not, and not uh, available for, not allowed to interact with Indian prisoners. Only European guards, only European warders watch over them, and they're very closely monitored. And why is that? Why are they given this um, exclusive treatment? But what is it about them that exotifies them to the British forces to warrant that kind of treatment? I think the, the, both the, the wars in, in Punjab showed one, the British, that they had matched, that they were pitted against a formidable enemy. And among, sort of, among members of that formidable enemy, no one gave them more trouble and for a longer period of time than Bhai Marad Singh. And so he had to be very closely guarded. And since at, when he was captured, he still seemed physically very robust, unlike some of the others who had meekly surrendered, or like his fellow rebel at that time, Mulraj, who was too weak to be transported overseas by Marat Singh was very different. And so sending him under lock and key to Singapore and then keeping him under lock and key and under very close supervision in Singapore, even though he is several months journey away or several weeks journey away from India, he was still to be feared. And, and thus the conditions under which he was kept in a jail in Singapore. No one else was treated like that. I know that the backstory for him getting caught was also quite significant. For example, there was a large bounty out for him, which was quite interesting at the time. And the story of, you know, when he's finally captured, uh, all the guards in, in the jail bow to him and hundreds and hundreds of people come to seek his darshan because they've heard Bhai Marat Singh has been captured. And this is when the local British officer uses this, uh, this comparison set. And of course, it's, it's outrageous, both in terms of Sikh religious history and Sikh religious traditions, as well as heretical in Christian terms, says he's like Jesus Christ. That's the way he's treated. <laughs> and his, his, uh, the senior f- uh, officials uh, in response to this, uh, uh, British official, official says, you can't use this kind of language. This, this is uh, transgressive and heretical in Christian terms. You can't call him a Jesus Christ. But that's the way he is regarded by everybody. All these people that, that come to see him and all the Sikh guards that bow down to Bhai Marad Singh and hold him in great reverence. And so this is why I think you asked me, uh, 
off camera, so to speak, about why the cover, because this history is really focused on what happens to people once they're over there, this one picture is gesturing towards what these people have left behind. So these are the artifacts taken from Bhai Marad Singh, and they're very telling, held by the, by the descendants of the family of the, the civil servant who captured Bhai Marad Singh and held him in captivity and uh, held on to all these things till the late 20th century. So almost 120, 30 years later, turned over these artifacts. And uh, you can see from uh, these artifacts how meaningful they were to a person who's on the run, which highlight not only his religiosity, but also the kind of lifestyle he had, where he has a thread and needle, right? to darn his clothes because he is on the run. And of course, the conch shell and the kara and then pages from uh, some sort of one of the grunts that he probably read, which testify both to his, the, fig the religious figure he was and the literate man that he was, that he carried these passages with him along with his kara and his needle and thread and the conch shell, because he, he was known to um, provide religious sort of uh, scriptural lessons to people he encountered, including to uh, the wives and mothers of many of the Sikh elite. So this is taken off of him uh, when he's captured. And the, the family kept it as souvenirs and held it before turning it over to the British Library in the late 20th century, over 100 years later. Yeah, it's really fascinating and goes to show how exceptional his character was. And, you know, he's left such a legacy. One physical memory of that can be traced, which is the letter he was able to write home. Yeah, I think he, he is... Um, so um, he and his companion play kind of different roles. So from the time he's captured... He shuts down and really refuses to speak. So here's a person who spoke volume, so to speak, in so many different ways, not only embodying certain kinds of values, but also acting in certain kinds of ways to advocate on behalf of uh, the Sikh cause against the British. But once he's captured, he clams up. Initially, he refuses to eat. And, and goes on sort of a starvation diet, and the British are terrified uh, that this person's going to become uh, a martyr by starving himself, but then he finally breaks his fast and starts eating. Once he, he's in Singapore, he doesn't speak very much, but Karak Singh is the exact opposite. Speaks all the time and yells at the authorities all the time. So obviously, it's something that the two people know that that's the roles they're going to play. Kalak Singh is the person who's always demanding more. So they were treated specially. They had far better diet than any prisoner did. They had kind of a, a well-off person's diet. And when asked, what more do you want? He would always demand all kinds of things. I want a thousand rupees a month. I want this kind of food. I want bhang. I want access to this, that, and the other. 
And they even ask, um, they even ask for books. And briefly, uh, Kadak Singh pretends, or maybe it's for real, that he is interested in Christianity. So ask for Christian tracts in in Gurmukhi so he can read them. Or maybe in, uh, it doesn't really say, so it could possibly be in Urdu, which of course every literate Punjabi knew at the turn of the, uh, in the late 19th century. And so all these books are, are provided him, while Karak Singh is very robust and very voluble and very aggressive, Bhai Maharaj Singh increasingly becomes quieter and quieter. And within sort of two or three years of his exile in Singapore, he is becoming sicker and sicker. And uh, not until he is allowed to write home in 1853, both men are given this special dispensation, partly as an allowance, I think, to Bhai Marad Singh, because he is physically um, ill. He is clearly fading. And so as a concession to him, they allow them to write letters to their family, quote unquote family. And of course, their family is back to their data or back to their encampment or back to their kind of uh, body that of uh, Sikh acolytes that they lived with in this encampment. And so they sent this letter back to, in the name of their former uh, teacher, and here guru not in the capital G sense, but guru just in the uh, Hindustani sense of somebody who's their teacher. And so it's addressed to their guru back in the encampment. But as it turns out, when their two letters reach this encampment, no one is willing to receive it. So it goes back to the authorities in, in Punjab, in, um, in Jalandhar, where it's then translated by the handful of Europeans. It was probably, I'm guessing it was this American Presbyterian missionary. He was one of the few non-Punjabis who spoke and read Gurmukhi. And he probably translated it. And then they realized these letters actually were uh, acts of insurgency where these people were saying, you know, uh, one of them is saying, help us. I'm treated horribly. Uh, it's worse than what you told me was going to be. And Karak Singh saying um, his usual sort of act of uh, self-confidence and aggressiveness saying, wait for me, I'm coming. We're about to come again, you know, as if, we're going to take up arms again and fight against the British. So very revealing the letters. I'm hoping one of these days to find the original letters, not only to hear, to see their handwriting, but also see the sketch that the British described were on these letters of these two figures with ships drawn on and the letter saying, we are far, far from Jagannath and very close to China, which, of course, Singapore must have seen, both in the harbor where Chinese ships or Chinese-looking ships abounded alongside British ships. But, of course, the population of Singapore by the mid-19th century was increasingly dominated by the Chinese, and Chinese were everywhere. So this idea of providing coordinates of where they are, they don't call it Singapore, they, 
and they would have, if they'd called it, they would have called it Singapura, as they, as many of the, many Indians refer to it. But instead, it's very far from Juggernaut, so far away from any of our holy sites, and almost in China. One of the other historical legacies that can be traced is the portrait of them both that was commissioned by Dalhousie. Could you please elaborate more about that? Because I do believe there is a lot of contention surrounding the authenticity regarding those photos. Yeah, I, I think the ones that are often used, and it was done by this very famous portraitist in, in Calcutta, I lean towards um, believing they're not of, of uh, Bhai Maharaj Singh, that there are other Sikh notables. But there is a figure that was done in Singapore that's possibly of Bhai Maharaj Singh, but their provenance is really difficult to gauge. And being kind of a, a historian who wants to make absolutely sure that, the, the, that they are authentic, uh, I don't know whether, I, I'm pretty confident that the ones that, that are usually uh, identified as him that were done in Calcutta are not of him, but the ones that uh, are from Singapore are of him. And the difference is the Calcutta ones is of this very robust person. And of course, it could be him, but the ones in Singapore uh, is of a much more wizened kind of figure who's no longer the warrior body that one typically portrays astride this huge horse that he used to ride around uh, in, in Punjab. There are also two other portraits done of him, and uh, this too I would have to, what, would have to authenticate myself, done on the walls of a Gurdwara near Amritsar, near where they came from. And sometimes these are also said to be portraits of Bhai Maharaj Singh, but I have not seen that for myself, so don't know whether that's authentic or not. Yeah, it's really interesting because he had such an energy about him, which really cemented his legacy wherever he went, one of which relates to his presence in Singapore on um, Sealeth Road. And it's so significant for a number of reasons, which I believe was largely unknown to the locals for a long time. The British in some ways won the battle, but not the war. Because when, when Bhai Maharaj Singh died in the summer of 1856, he is largely forgotten. The only, I didn't, I have never found any notice of his death in any Indian publication in India. I'm sure it exists somewhere, but uh, in 1856, there weren't, uh, you know, so maybe in some Urdu newspaper in 1856 or some memoir written by some Punjabi in 1856, there's mention that Bhai Maharaj Singh died in Singapore. There's a single line in Singapore newspapers, Bhai Maharaj Singh dies in July 1856. And then seemingly he's forgotten, Right. His companion continues to be the aggressive, furious, uh, determined to fight against the British. Because after Bhai Maharaj Singh dies, he, he is basically released from jail and allowed to do whatever he wants to do. So what does he do? 
Once uh, 1857 happens, the mutiny rebellion happens, and some of the mutineers are sent to um, sent to Singapore. He immediately starts mobilizing and organizing them. And when he's found out, he says, "No, no, no! I was just trying to organize people, and I'm, you know, if you send me back to India, I will happily fight on your behalf against the mutineers." And of course, they're terrified that he might unite prisoners and the mutineers and lead uh, an uprising in Singapore. So they banish him to Penang, where they think he, he's not going to do much mischief. And in Penang, he continues to send petition after petition uh, well into the early 1870s, uh, when I lose uh, any track of him because there, he doesn't speak up anymore after that. So right to the very end, he's asking for all kinds of favors and continues to be uh, the highly active voice against uh, representing himself. Bhai Maharaj Singh kind of disappears, and you go, wow, how could his legacy disappear? Because the first Sikh prisoners start coming to Singapore in 1853. There was probably a Sikh or two that was banished to Singapore before that, but uh, I'm guessing not because Punjab is really not taken over fully till 1849-1850. And as Punjab comes under the British, uh, the British are using transportation to send more heinous offenders off to the islands, different islands. And so Punjabis, including Sikhs, are being banished to Singapore. And the first large group of Sikh prisoners arrive in Singapore in 1853. Uh, and that must have worried the British, although they don't make that association between Sikh prisoners and their two famous rebels, because as soon as the Sikh prisoners come, they rise up in arms. They, they attempt a jailbreak in, en masse, all the Sikh prisoners, because they are really criminals who, who were caught up in the fighting against the British. So they've been sentenced to Singapore, not because of garden variety crimes, but because they were still fighting against the British. And so they, and they're organized and they're all, they all know one another. So they rise up in arms. Other Indian prisoners help put down that uprising. And then uh, really starting in 1881, the first large groups of Sikhs arrive as policemen to uh, staff the Singapore police. So it doesn't happen till the 1880s. So there's this intervening 20, 30 years, what has happened to Bhaiman Ad Singh? The first, the next mention in Singaporean records of Bhaiman Ad Singh is not till the 1920s, when this very famous um, Sikh notable in Singapore, uh, Chur Singh says, oh, there's a place where a lot of people go offer various kinds of prayers, and we believe it is the tomb or the place where uh, Bhai Marad Singh uh, was either cremated or buried. And so Indians go there to offer prayers because this, uh, this site is sacred and offers people, uh, responds to people's requests for various kinds of things. So already known in the 1920s as the grantor of boons. Yeah, that's very Sufi-esque. Is there any correlation there between those lineages of traditions where he now becomes a memorialized saint? 
Well, I think uh, if you think about what is the, the most famous public ritual performed in the Indian community well into the late 19th century, it's Muharram. So Muharram was the occasion when people marched through the streets of Singapore carrying banners, carrying tazias. And so this, this is, of course, a Shiite custom, but enthusiastically participated in by every Indian in Singapore, both prisoners as well as soldiers, the other large body of Indians, as well as the Indian population there. Why? Because it was an occasion when people were allowed to take over the central part of Singapore and march in procession. So they had license to demonstrate, to be rowdy, because it was all accompanied by not only these banners and effigies, but also a lot of carousing and, and yelling and screaming. So for a 10-day period, the streets of Singapore, a certain section of the streets of Singapore belonged to the Indian public. And so there wasn't that sense of this is Hindu, this is Muslim, this is Sikh, but it was a joyous occasion. So Muharram was the biggest, the Sera was the other kind of occasion at which people gathered. But Muharram was really the largest. And the reason why is in Muharram for 10 days, people take over the streets and uh, have the right to parade in public. Some of the, in Penang, for instance, one of the Muslim prisoners uh, became famous for spending all his allowance and his savings on providing food and providing sweets to orphaned and poor children. And a mosque was built on where he ended his life and that became a karamat, so it became a Sufi site. So not unknown for these kinds of prisoners to have tremendous uh, religious legacies. So uh, whether it's the Mariaman Temple or whether it's the main uh, St. Andrew's Cathedral in Singapore or whether it's the Armenian Church, who built all of these things? Prisoners. So every house of worship built until 1850s, 1860s, were built by Indian prisoners. So they built not only their own uh, temples and masjids, but they also built all the Christian ones. And St. Andrews, of course, is then rebuilt in the mid 19th century, again by convicts. So every road, every bridge, every wharf, uh, every ghat, every public building that required large inputs of labor were largely done by Indian labor, and it meant mostly convict labor. It's interesting to see how that history is repeating itself. For example, in California and, and the wildfires, where they used prisoners to fight the flames for essentially free labor. What all these um, penal systems have in common is that they are carceral systems designed to protect the interests of the state and certain classes in, in the society, and at the same time designed to exploit 
it's either exploit the labor by by uh, casting them into confined spaces or mobilizing their brawn to further the interests of this of the state or private enterprises. So they can be used in any number of ways, building buildings or like in some American prisons to grow gardens or to make things or to, you know, whether it's fighting the California wildfires or doing other such projects. Uh, it, and by the way, in Singapore, the initial firefighters were convicts. Convicts also ended up in the police force. One last question I had on by Maharaj Singh and this uh, idea that his energy continues to exist as a ghost or a spirit which some of the locals believe quite strongly. Well, you know, he, he's uh, taken on uh, many lives since uh, he was seemingly uh, cast into oblivion in Singapore. And uh, his uh, spirit has risen both in uh, literal and metaphorical terms. He's very much alive today. There are any number of uh, books and documentaries and stories uh, written about him. The Gurdwara, in fact, puts out this, this wonderful publication about him that it distributes, the Silat Singh uh, Gurdwara. And finally, did you contribute to the documentary that was made about him, I believe, by Upneet Kaur? Yes, in the sense that I provided them the, the research that I've done, as well as uh, spent a few hours talking to the filmmaker about... Uh, my take on Bhai Maharaj Singh. But of course, I'm writing more as a historian who's wedded to, to basing his, his findings on certain kinds of records. And of course, the documentary is more hagiographic in its scope and emphasis, as, as it rightly should be. Because it's, it's more about celebrating a, a person, which I think my history does, but in, in much more muted tones, because that's not the way scholars write. Well, those are all the questions I had, but was there anything you'd like to add before we close? Anything I might have missed? It's just sort of the present day legacies of these kinds of histories, the way you know, the past infuses the present. So the way one thinks about Singapore today where that whole convict past has been buried very deep. And until the Indian Heritage Center came up in Singapore, the only thing that the Singapore Museum had that made any kind of uh, identification of the convict past is those three little bricks that it has in the museum where it says, you know, the convicts built these, rather than recognize that the entire built environment of Singapore owed a lot to these convicts. The other kind of connection to later history, of course, is that the uh, Indian National Army that Subhash Chandra Bose put together in Singapore was made up of uh, Sikhs as well as Hindus and Muslims. And um, the famous trial that took place with the uh, INA um, prisoners in uh, India was of a Sikh, Hindu, and, and Muslim. And so that history lived on. And it tells you something about how much or how little we knew about Bhai Maharaj Singh 
that they didn't name one of the battalions after him, which would have been one way to gesture towards the Southeast Asian ties of uh, these two incredibly brave and determined individuals who were uh, sent into exile in Singapore. So lessons learned, lessons forgotten. Well, thank you so much for your time and sharing with us so much about your book and some of the findings from the decades of research you have committed to this area of study. It is a fascinating story and one captured so well in your publications, which I believe everyone who is studying a colonial history of Punjab and Sikh studies must have on their reading lists, both personally or if they come from a university course or or otherwise. And I should also add that you have a lot of established literature on the agricultural policies of colonial India. So I really hope we can arrange a second conversation exploring that in the near future. I look forward to sharing this podcast with our listeners because I know how much it means to many of our listeners that tune in to these podcast episodes. So thank you again. And last but not least, I would like to thank our sponsor, Six Student Learning, and the tens of thousands of followers across our social media channels that continue to motivate us to actively record and share Sikh history. We hope to continue to keep recording more podcasts and make more Sikh history accessible in audio format. So if you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, please share with others so that we can attract more supporters that in turn help us to generate more episodes. Thank you. <laughs>